Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to hear from your word as it is preached. And we thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us through the scripture. You've spoken to us through your son. And we thank you, Father, that through this time, uh, you will use the scripture and the preaching of the gospel to further your kingdom. God, we ask that as your word is opened and as we read from it, as we hear from it, that you by your spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would be encouraging us where we need to be encouraged, that you'd be strengthening us and, and fitting us for the week ahead. God, we thank you for, again, this opportunity to hear from you. And so we ask, Father, that you would receive all the glory and the honor, honor and the praise in this time. And we ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So imagine waking up one morning from a very deep and dreamlike state. You feel entirely relaxed as you slowly come to, and you begin to focus your mind. But as you begin to realize your surroundings, you realize that you're actually in this like dark and dank and dimly lit cave. It's kind of creepy, actually. Um, you hear water dripping in the distance, kind of like the ticking of a clock. Just tick-tock, tick-tock, drip-drop. And you see a faint light not too far from you also in the distance. So naturally, inching your way toward this light, you're trying to figure out what's going on. You're inching your way toward it, and you hear this soft yet subtle voice calling out your name. Link, you are the hero. You must save Hyrule. <laughs> now, many of you know by now, um, I'm a huge Nintendo geek when it comes to video games, and yes, I'm getting a few eyes right now. Um, I especially love the game called The Legend of Zelda. It's been around for like 30 years now since the late 1980s. It's been around through dozens of iterations, but the story has remained somewhat the same. You play as this character named Link, the hero of Hyrule, who must save the princess and the people from utter distress. The story is marked in many ways by a coming of age for the hero himself, a rescue and a conquering of evil, even by means of a sacrificial redemption, often at the cost of the hero himself. Redemption that is often at the personal expense of this hero. Now, if you think of your own favorite tales or mythologies or narratives, uh, think of like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Count of Monte Cristo, or perhaps even the Princess Bride, as you wish, um, you'll quickly realize that we're all drawn to stories of redemption, this redemptive narrative. We live in a world that, though it's so beautiful in its own right, it is certainly marked by the corruption and the stain of sin. We have this longing within our own souls for perfect harmony and peace at last, but we have this struggle with corruption not only around us, but also within our own souls. We ourselves face despair and doom and disunity, despondency, and therefore we know that we ourselves are not the answer. This rescue of our own state from this disharmony, as it were, or disunity, cannot come from us. It must come from outside of us to us. So this morning, we are going to see these same themes of rescue and struggle and redemption in the very words of the Apostle Paul to the floundering church in Thessalonica. So let's go ahead and collectively turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and following for the reading of the Word of God. Here in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 and following, we're about to bear witness to this grand theme the grand theme of pursuing love, pursuing love, a love that pursues even in the midst of great and dire affliction. 
So let's hear these inspired words from the Apostle Paul to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with a great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord, Jesus, at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith, so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were about to suffer affliction, just as it has now come to pass, and just as you know yourselves experientially. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. This is the word of God. As usual, we have three points in this sermon this morning, and the first point I want to bring up is that of this right here, the Thessalonians' pursuit of love. The Thessalonians' pursuit of love. And this is found in verses 17 through 20, in particular, of chapter 2. Now, as we've been covering ground in our series of 1 Thessalonians the past few weeks, we've seen over and over again a certain kind of language that Paul uses. Uh, If you had to boil all of Paul's talk so far from these past two chapters down to just simply one word, I would venture to say that it's this one word, affection. Affection. If you recall, in the first chapter of this letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had written this church with the following words from verses 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He then noted a little further down in verse 9 that they had quickly received the gospel and that their loyalty had shifted away from this vain idol worship to worship of the true and living God. Now, many of us here have grown up in Christian homes. We've heard the gospel countless times, and when we look around, even so many of the children here in our own church can recite the gospel back to us, even in their own words. It's amazing. It's such a blessing. And it's truly a mark of God's covenantal faithfulness to us as a church here at Grace. But the church in Thessalonica they didn't have this kind of history or backdrop. See, their story was one of paganism and idol worship, worship of foreign gods before they had actually received the Lord Jesus Christ and submitted to him as Lord over their lives. And this shift that they experienced from their former idol worship over to and away from man-centered religion over to God-centered adoration um, had cost them greatly. See, the religious atmosphere of that day in ancient Greece, right near where uh, Thessalonica itself was located, um, this religious culture was so heavily interwoven into the tapestry of their lives. If you can recall even learning about ancient Greece as a kid, perhaps, um, you might remember and even recall how steeped they were in religion, but also philosophy, right? For these new Christians to shift away from their old way of life, their former way of life to submission to Christ, it truly meant an overhaul 
of their entire worldview. It meant a renewing of their mindset, a shift in not only behavior, but their minds as they operate. It meant a drastic change in their worldly affections, but even maybe their own unethical worldly employments. Can you imagine what this would feel like if you were to experience this, this utter shift? You've put your trust in the true and living God. You've turned away from idols. Your life has been flipped right side up. But now you've been made to suffer at the hands of your own neighbors, people down the street from you. Talk about a long lesson in humility. But see, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, in writing them, they took great compassion on this people. This is why in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul reassured this young church of their new identity in Christ before God. They were loved by God. They were chosen by God. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 says, And this message of Christ, the gospel itself, had come to them in power and in the word and by the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or faith. Now this is also why Paul and the others treated the Thessalonians with so much respect and so much honor, calling them and considering them to be equals, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were beloved ones who had been pastorally cared for deeply, and yet Paul had a very deep and clear sense of the responsibility that he had for them. Because in many ways, as Pastor Tom was just preaching last week, they, like Paul, were also social outcasts with their own countrymen. Now, flipping back over to 1 Thessalonians 2.17, our passage for this morning, Paul used a very powerful word in their own Greek language to describe the situation at hand. He said this in his own words, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, we endeavored to see you face to face. Now, that first opening line right there, um, we really don't have a direct equivalent for it in the English, but it's literally this word for uh, orphan, being made an orphan. When he says we were torn away from you, it's basically saying we were orphaned away from you. And you can imagine the kind of language there, the powerfulness of that word. We were orphaned from you. Perhaps nothing on earth is more heartwarming than seeing a family reunited after a long vacation or after, after a long time of separation. But on the flip side, there's also probably nothing so heartbreaking as seeing a family torn apart, children from their own parents. And Paul used this exact same concept here in that very verse to describe how the church leaders have been separated like parents from their children away from this church in Thessalonica. John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, described the situation as one of bereavement or great loss. It's like losing a family member, a longing that could not really be satisfied until both parties had been reunited. But notice Paul's language here. It's not only tender-hearted and very sensitive, but it's also filled with a hope, and a reassurance. See, he described their separation as, yes, having taken place physically, and and even spatially, yes, but it was only, it was not at the heart level. It was only there physically, but certainly not at heart. Uh, Similarly speaking, seven months ago, I had the privilege and the opportunity to move just even in a short hour away from Lynchburg here to Charlottesville in this area uh, to come serve here at Grace. Now, I had lived um, in Lynchburg for half of my life, and for 15 long years, um, had the privilege of just being deeply rooted in that community. I still have so many good friends there. 
Whenever I go back to visit, I get to catch up with my best friends there. I get to hang out with my family. But I always make it a point to stop by my favorite coffee shop. I used to live right around the corner from it, and I would walk over there almost every day. And I've joked with many of you guys that that coffee shop called the White Heart Cafe, which I know actually a few of you guys have even been to, uh, the White Heart Cafe reminds me so much of the show Cheers. Like, you walk in there, and everybody just seems to know your name. And it's kind of funny, because like whenever I do walk in there, I have friends with the owner and the staff, and I'll even see people sitting at the tables in the bar area, and they're like, hey, he's back, he's back in town. And it happens every time. It's so much fun. Uh, it's like family in many ways, and the White Heart even kind of uses that um, uh, language of themselves. They realize we're kind of like a family together. Well, in the same way, here at Grace, um, I consider you guys in many ways to be like family to me. Um, even since my time here, you guys have quickly, just in the past few months, become like family. Our church is a place that is genuinely marked with the very love and compassion of Christ, and it's known for this very love and compassion in the community. A new friend of mine who was even just visiting Grace this past Sunday uh, texted me a couple nights ago, and he's just saying, I'm so encouraged because um, I could really, in his own words, feel the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our love and our fellowship toward one another. And he was so encouraged to see the positive changes with Tom being installed as our associate pastor last week even. He could see the love and the compassion of Christ tangibly right before him in the body. Church, you are the handiwork of Christ, and you are deeply loved by him. You, just like the church in Thessalonica, are the joy and the crown and the hope and the glory of those who have the privilege of serving you. Every single week, I see glistening examples of selfless love and hospitality, of generosity, joined together with gentle humility and patience and virtue. And so even in this season of, of slight change that we've been experiencing the past few weeks or so, I want to encourage you all. Doubts and worry will certainly come our way, and I'm sure many of us have already had doubts and concerns. But I want to encourage you to hold fast to the head that is Christ of this church. Hold fast to the truth that you are God's beloved people. And the people of God, as we know, have never been forgotten or abandoned by him throughout the course of history. So as we hold fast to the gospel, the glory of Christ will continue to resound as it already is in our own fellowship. God is certainly leading us through a process of change, but oh, what a joy it is to see his faithfulness to us in this time. Great is his faithfulness. This leads us to our second point for this morning, and this is found in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. So we were just looking at the Thessalonians' pursuit of love, and here I believe we see this, uh, Paul's pursuit done in love. Paul's pursuit in love. Now all of this talk of love and grace is wonderful and it's comforting, right? Uh, but have you noticed that there's a part of the text I haven't addressed just yet? Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the apostle Paul spoke of returning to this church and even sending Timothy because he longed so much to be with them. Uh, and even though Timothy was such a young man, you know, maybe around 30 years old or so, uh, Paul had been hindered by, uh, in his multiple attempts to come to the church in Thessalonica. But how was he hindered? By what? Or better yet, by whom? Satan, the tempter. Now I realize that even as soon as I said that word Satan, 
um, collectively, including myself, we all just became a little uncomfortable, you know. Um, this fictitious, red-suited, devil-horned, uh, you know, fictor, uh, fictional character doesn't really exist, does he? Well, not at least in the way I just described him, but he most certainly does. See, the post-Enlightenment era of the 1700s and the era of, of modernism of the 1800s and 1900s, and, and even into the 20th century, even in our own day and age to this point, um, all this time we've sought to kind of put away with things involving the supernatural. Uh, modernism itself didn't know how to comprehend the supernatural, and even pun intended, kind of demonized belief in the supernatural, all in the pursuit of being rational. Now, antithetically, we live in a very much a postmodern society now in the 21st century. And postmodernism of today has embraced irrational thinking, if anything. Um, it's tried to put away truth or brute facts in favor of the human experience. Whatever feels good, do that. So both rationalism and irrationalism, both modernism and postmodernism, have both had trouble with the concept of spiritual warfare. This is why we think mostly of the forces of darkness or spiritual warfare um, as being something that was kind of archaic. You know, this is something that those people in the medieval ages believed in, didn't really exist, but they were a little, you know, maybe a little stupid or whatnot. Um, the reformers of the 1500s, they didn't know how to handle these things. We're better than that. Same with those, you know, those pious Puritans. They didn't know how to think about these things. We're so much better. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> I would venture to say, though, that the church has tended to swing like a pendulum between one of two different extremes regarding spiritual warfare. Either one, obsession over the topic at hand, or a kind of willful ignorance toward it. So the question is this for us. How do we stay grounded in a healthy view of this topic? I would venture to say it's this, God's word. We, we will do well to submit our intellect our minds, our hearts, to the authority of Scripture and what Scripture says about this. See, in Scripture, we see that the name Satan literally means adversary. Adversary. And unlike pagan thought, which has often been misappropriated to Christianity, um, the adversary is never considered to be an equal to God or even in similitude toward God. He's actually described as being uh, an enemy of the people of God set about for their destruction and their discord, their disunity. He is a deceiver and a tempter, and he tries to fight against, and this is the key here, he tries to fight against the advancement of the gospel as it spreads forth. Now, having been involved in the ministry in various roles uh, at different times over the past 10 years, and growing up as a pastor's kid myself, I've seen multiple instances uh, of discord being sown in the church. And this often comes in times or seasons where people who are wrestling with pride and arrogance and immorality of various kinds are led to actions of injustice toward those who are weaker, those who can be taken advantage of. Now, none of these things are from God because in Christ, who is the very image of God, we see the very opposite. We see perfect humility and concern for others, and purity and justice. Rather, these evil actions are things that stem from the outworking of human sin. Sin that is led along by temptation. Evil desires 
that were given the opportunity to conceive, as James 1 puts it. Now, looking back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see that Paul was not only affectionate of the church and toward the church, but that he was concerned for their sake because he recognized the power of indwelling sin and the power of temptation to doubt the goodness and loving faithfulness of Almighty God. So again, with fatherly language, Paul is here reassuring them that he desired strongly to be with this suffering church, but that he himself was also suffering affliction, and he couldn't make it there to be with them. Now, if I was in Paul's position, this situation would just tear me up inside. Uh, I've taken so many personality tests over the years, from the Myers-Briggs to Strength Finders uh, to you know, cultural intelligence a couple times and uh, pro-development assessment and all kinds of these personality tests. One that, in, in getting to know you all very well, one that I've heard um, on many occasions is popular here is called the Enneagram. Uh, now, when I took the Enneagram a couple years ago, it was really weird, but I found myself, uh, usually you get like one personality type. I found myself getting like three. <laughs> Don't know what that says, but I was like tied between three different key proclivities. Uh, loyalty, uh, being the achiever, as it were. So the loyalist, the achiever, and also a helper. So kind of like evenly split between the three of them. Still don't know what to make of that. But what I have learned from that, though, is that uh, in many ways, I'm driven to help those in need I'm driven to add value to the lives of those, uh, especially with whom I share a common affinity. Now, on the flip side, though, uh, and these are positive things, right, that we see through these kind of personality tests. We also see the negative side of our personalities. And on the flip side, I've seen over the past 30 years of my life that um, I've often been faced with a sense of powerlessness at times when I cannot help somebody in need, especially when they're near and dear to my heart. And I'm sure many of you, no matter what your personality type might be from these tests, uh, I'm sure many of you have felt the same kind of thing before. Perhaps you have loved ones who are just out of reach, beyond your care. And they might be suffering pain, and you're unable to be there with them. Perhaps you have a child who has heard the gospel over and over again, but who later in life has walked away from obedience and love toward Christ. Perhaps those in authority of you in your own workplace um, have given you more responsibility than you can handle, and you feel the weight and the powerlessness of not being able to cope with that. These are all real examples. And each of these things makes us feel inadequate in some way and powerless. And that is exactly how the Apostle Paul felt with the church in Thessalonica. He felt powerless to come to their aid. And yet, though he couldn't be with this church in person, uh, God gave Paul two opportunities in particular to still be of aid to them. One was that he was able to send Timothy uh, to be of help to them, to encourage them, to hear how they were doing. But he also had the privilege of, of writing to them, you know, this, this letter to the Thessalonians. And what's amazing is that, you know, though we don't understand everything in God's providence in this situation, it's amazing is that for 2,000 years now, this inspired word of God, this letter to these broken people, these people that Paul himself could not reach, has now been a blessing to the church by and large. What an amazing thing. See, sometimes we don't understand the brokenness or the powerlessness in our own situations, but God is still at work, and we do well to fix our eyes upon him in these moments of weakness. 
because God himself is our living and faithful God, and he is both sovereign and wise. As Christians, we often will learn of Christ, how to bear the crosses we've been given, um, so that we might even follow him in the midst of our deepest and darkest distresses. Now, all of this then leads us to our third and final point for this morning. Again, we were just looking at Paul's pursuit of these Thessalonians in love, but it was imperfect in many ways, right? Our third point this morning is kind of nestled right in between verse 19, and is this, that Christ pursues us in love. Christ pursues us in love. See, when we are faced with tragedy and distress, we have a deep longing for an unhindered, unbridled, um, perfect pursuer who will pursue us in love. And this pursuer has no other name but Christ. Even in Paul's situation, marked by this affliction, he presented the hope that he had in this risen Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19 alludes to the fact that these distresses that they were facing were not final. The Lord Jesus is surely coming again, Paul was saying to them. Jesus is coming again with power and with glory and with might for the very rescue of his people and for the full establishment of his perfect kingdom of glory here on this earth. See, where human aid may fail, God our Father proves to be triumphant. And so as we begin to close things up in today's sermon, I want us to turn our attention briefly, though, to Psalm 18. So if you would please turn there. Psalm 18. This is one of my favorite psalms. And in Psalm 18, we see the king of Israel, David, who was very familiar with both pain and loss. Uh, He proclaimed in this psalm to the very Lord himself that, God, you are my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer. He proclaimed that the Lord was his God, his rock, in whom he could take refuge. And out of his own deep distress, David had called upon the Lord, and from his very temple, God heard him. Poetically speaking, David's cry for help had reached the ears of Almighty God. Now, I love verse 7 and following in particular in Psalm 18, because we see that God had stopped at nothing to rescue his son out of distress. Check this out in verse 7. Then the earth reeled and it rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He made the heavens like a bow and came shooting down to his rescue. Now granted, The Psalms are brimming with this kind of poetic and vivid and lively language. But dwell on this truth. God came to his own to save them. In 1 Thessalonians, thinking back to that, we found that Paul was inadequate to meet the needs of these hurting people. Uh, But we also found that God himself, in many ways, is the one who, like Psalm 18 says, bent back that bow and came shooting down himself to us, to our rescue. See, sin and the power of sin, which is death, may seem temporarily to triumph over us. But think of the truth from Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, uh, to redeem those who were under the law. 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Christ is the arrow of God, as it were, who came shooting down to our rescue in perfect timing, in the fullness of time, even while we were still in our distress under sin. And even while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us, the unjust, the unloving, so that uh, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for us. And though he died for our sins, Christ was raised back to life, bringing us life. And though he has ascended on high, he is now ruling and reigning over us in love and in glory and will in his perfect timing come back for the final rescue of his people and to restore all things. So my friends, we have this hope. We have this hope that Christ our King um, will come for us one day at the end of time. And so as we conclude, I want us to hear these words of encouragement from the late Presbyterian pastor from the 17th century, Samuel Rutherford, as he spoke to the same issue. So hear these words of encouragement from this pastor of long ago. All the saints have their own measure of winter before their eternal summer. But oh, for the long day and the high sun and that fair garden and the king's great city up above these visible heavens. For what God layeth on us right now, let us suffer. For some have one cross, some seven, some half of a cross, some ten. And yet all the saints have fullness of joy. And even if we have seven crosses, we have seven or full amount of joy. With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we have um, been mindful of the sense that we have great encouragement in the gospel, no matter what our situation might be, we have this truth that is built upon the rock, you, O Christ, that you truly are our rock and our fortress, our refuge and our salvation. You are, O Christ, our our mighty tower, and the righteous one runs into the tower and is safe. So God, I ask that as we um, go about these these our very weeks over the next few days, um, that you would be reminding us of the strength and the consolation that we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, that our situation is in many ways very dissimilar to that of the Thessalonians. The persecution may look very differently in our own lives, And yet we still are faced with all kinds of trying times and issues and struggles, Father. So we pray, O Lord, that you would give us strength for the week ahead, that you would remind us of the cost of grace, that Christ himself laid down his life for us to give us life, and that he is risen and reigning, and that we have the privilege of one day being forever with him in perfect and unbridled fellowship. God, as we long for that day, that final day when Christ will come back for his own, We pray that you would continue to um, inflame our hearts with a passion for him, a desire to see those who do not know him yet come to know him as Lord and Savior. And may we be um, agents of the gospel message as it goes forth. May we be people who are used of you to advance this kingdom of grace in our own midst. And we pray all this in Christ's holy and mighty name. Amen.